Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Take your Bibles, please, as our time for studying the words is upon us. John chapter 1. Doug Felton read for us the text, but let's go back there. John chapter 1, please. And we'll focus our thoughts this morning on verses 19 and beyond. We're looking really at the introduction of the forerunner of Jesus Christ, really the one who was called to introduce the Christ to the world. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it has to me, sadly. I have been talking to someone and perhaps in the church for you, or you meet someone perhaps that you think is important, and you're talking to them, and your spouse comes up beside you, and you're so engrossed in the conversation that you don't see her or him there, and uh, you get that look, right? You forget to introduce that person, your spouse that is, and you get that look like, hello, I'm here, remember me? (laughs) Why don't you introduce me? I am, after all, married to you, the most important person in your life. And then you kind of get the step on the toe or the nudge in the ribs that reminds you, oh, yes. And by the way, this is my, my wife or my husband. As a pastor, I often get asked to introduce folks, special speakers and missionaries and whatnot, and it always demands that you know at least a little bit about the person you're introducing And John the Baptist was called uh, to introduce and announce Christ to the world, the most important person there ever is or ever was or ever shall be. Imagine for a moment if you were called on to introduce, let's say, Governor Kemp to an audience. What would you say? Well, you'd do your homework a little bit, get to know his family and what he does as a governor. Uh, It is important. My favorite introductions of all are those that I make at the end of a wedding ceremony. It gives me great honor and pleasure at this time to introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And there's this chair that comes from the audience, and it's a blessing to introduce a newly married couple. But what an honor to introduce Jesus. Can you imagine his resume? John was called to introduce and announce Christ to the world. Can you imagine what you would say? What would you say about that? If he was visiting uh, our church or your family today, John the Baptist was called to say something. What a resume that person had, Christ himself, created the world in six days. He knows the secret to life and everlasting life. His power to raise the dead, walk through walls, walk on water, do miracles, rule nations, command an army of angels. He lives in heaven. He can't look on sin. He's never broken a promise. And it gives me great honor and pleasure to introduce to you, Jewish nation, for the very first time, God of very gods in the flesh. And behold, he is right here. Behold the Lamb. And so his job to introduce Christ to the Jews was this. He summarized all these great accolades, at least here, by saying what? Behold the Lamb of God. 
which taketh away the sin of the world. Aren't you glad? And he is very intentional about this in his introduction. He says, I want you to know him. You must see him. You must know that he is now among us in the flesh. You must know his mission. He is the Lamb of God here to deal with sins. I love that title, the Lamb of God. It's used only in John's writings, twice in this book, and then over a dozen times in the book he wrote called the book of Revelation. As we see here, he's the Lamb that will sacrifice his body for sins, but he's the coming Lamb who will reign and judge over all at the end times. As we think about our series, Christ is Our Life, I can't help but point you to the news a bit. I did last time as well, but what a thing it is to think that this little strip of land called Gaza, the Gaza Strip, is being the point of turmoil and all the attention again of the world is focused in on this group of people. And what is amazing after this atrocious attack from the Hamas people on the Jewish people The world is now rallying, not around the Jews, surprise and awe, shock. We're seeing thousands upon hundreds of thousands rallying to the cause of Hamas, the terrorist organization that slaughtered thousands of Jewish people in their attack on the Jews, surprising attack. Instead, the response of the world, except for a few countries, is let's love on Hamas, And we see that antagonism towards the Jew and antagonism towards Christ and Christians as an ongoing theme because our hearts are sinful and whatever, of course, God has set his love upon and set a covenant with becomes the ire and the irritation and the aggravation of the devil. And we see this as the great theme now, the growing, escalating theme of the world is this focus on this part of the world. And isn't it great that there was an answer? If we needed anything when Christ came, if we needed a scientist, you would have sent us a scientist. If we needed a great engineer, he would have sent us that. But the Lord knew that we needed a Savior. The problem of the world is our sin nature and our hatred for whatever's good. I'm glad that this book, the Gospel of John, was written that we might believe in Jesus, that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life Because of our sinful nature, we might have eternal life through his name. And this man is introduced to the world when he came by the the man by the name of John the Baptist. We see the stories told for us. Verse 19 says, this is the record of John. John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? The first thing we see is that there is a disagreement or a denial. He, he confessed and denied not. He said, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elijah? And he says, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Who art thou then? That we might give an answer. He was sent from the Pharisees. This contingent of religious leaders wanted to find out who John was. And so we see this, first of all, this is a voice that they hear coming from John the Baptist. It's a voice of disagreement. And you see these verses here through verse 22. Great crowds were coming out to see John. He was not like any other prophet they had heard in a great while. 
See, there's been those 400 years of silence. And John, being the last prophet in the line, has the distinction and the the job of announcing and introducing Christ. And he's not quiet. This prophet is out in the wilderness and he's crying out, repent, come to Christ. And they ask him out of curiosity in verse 19, we've heard about your growing ministry. John and Jesus are only six months apart. Uh, He's a relative, really, of Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, Elizabeth and Zacharias had John the Baptist six months before. Of course, Jesus was born to Mary. And even in the womb, John the Baptist was excited about Jesus. Remember the story, the nativity story, how in the womb, the next womb over, he's jumping for joy when Jesus comes. And it's an amazing man. Already he knows his designation to reach out to the world and express and make it be a forerunner of who Jesus was. So they ask him, your crowds are growing, your popularity. John, who are you? And they ask him a series or a battery of questions. And uh, he says, uh, I, I am not. I disagree with you. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. He confessed, verse 20, He said, I deny not. He says, I am not he. This is in in the Greek, it's emphatic. I want you to know without a a shred of doubt that I am not Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's not who I am. In fact, he would later say, I'm not worthy even to what? Tie the laces on his sandals. I'm not Christ. They were concerned about who this man was, and what a sight John the Baptist was. He came in the spirit and nature of Elijah of old. John didn't grow up in the fancy colleges and universities. John, uh, kind of after, uh, after he was born and grew up a little bit there, he was sent out to the wilderness where he lived his life in seclusion. He was a Nazarite. That means he let his hair grow. And his diet, of course, consisted, what does the Bible say, of locusts and wild honey. He was a man, a man's man. He was a voice to, to really set straight and make the path clear for the coming of Christ. He had the appearance of a rough, wild man who was there coming, not even to the cities and urban developments, but out in the country and people would flock to hear him. His message was unique. But this group of folks Knowing of John the Baptist's background, that he was the son of a priest, Zacharias, had questions. The Pharisees said, what are, what's going on? Are you perhaps the prophesied one? Are you the Christ, the anointed one? They know that he had the right credentials, but they wanted to know who he was. What a sight to see, a leather belt, very poor pulpit etiquette. He would have probably not made it through any pulpit committee, any ordination council, because his way was rough and direct, sharp, convicting, clear. When the Pharisees would come around, he would cry, he would decry, wouldn't he? He'd holler out loud, what caused you to come here, he would say. You generation of vipers, you hypocrites, what are you doing here? He had this fire in his belly that came from heaven above. No visitor card for you today, he would say to the Pharisees. You need to get out of here. You're a generation of snakes and vipers. You're deceiving men, pretending to be religious. 
Wow. But here they are anyway, asking him, Who are you? Are you the Christ? And he disagrees. The priests were of the order of Aaron, temple officials. They performed sacerdotal duties, so to speak, sacrificial duties. And the Levites were temple servants, and they were sent to him from Jerusalem for answers about who he was. They come because they're concerned that such a priest, from a priestly line at least, might have been, could have been. After all, the crowds were flocking to hear the direct preaching of John the Baptist. Who are you? Well, they're concerned too that he's baptizing at all. Baptism in those days was usually done by a person himself who would take a dip in, a Jordan, in the river and they would, as a Gentile, they would ascribe to the community of Jews the faith and practice of the Jewish people. And so often that was practiced by Gentiles ascribing, proselytizing to the community of faith known there in, 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 in Jerusalem and, of course, in Israel. But this was different. John was baptizing Jewish people. And so they're really concerned as they come out. This They all have those, you know, the round glasses and they got all their credentials and they're from the religious higher-ups and they come out to kind of question John about this. And so John, either, either you're way off base or you're introducing the new kingdom, the kingdom of God and Christ. You must be the Messiah because you're baptizing Jews and of all people, we don't need to be baptized. After all, we are the children of Abraham. If anybody is in with God and righteous with God, it's the people of the covenant. And John was saying, no, your sin is what separates you from the kingdom of God. And the king is at hand. He's at the door. And he was baptizing folks as an introduction of those that have repented, confessed their sin, and wanted a Savior, the Messiah. They didn't understand that. So they asked him, well, are you he? And he says, no. Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not him. Verse 21 what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that, art thou that prophet? The prophet, of course, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, was identified later by Stephen and Christ himself as Christ himself. Stephen and Peter both identified this prophet prophesied in Deuteronomy as the coming Christ. And he again says, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Christ. Who are you then? Well, the voice then becomes a voice of distinction. Verse 23, he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And of course, the next verse says, this group of folks was sent from the group of the Pharisees. And our job is the similar job as to what John the Baptist, I want to say this by way of application. He said, I'm the voice. That's all I am. I'm not these famous people. I'm not these famous prophets of old. I'm not the Messiah who is appearing now in the flesh to help develop the kingdom on earth. That's not who I am. I'm simply a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare your heart the coming of Christ. He's here. He's approaching. Jesus is coming again. I am, John is saying, a voice of distinction, 
I'm not a mealy-mouthed religious leader that's going around pacifying folks there around the Sanhedrin, trying to make all of you believe that you're in because you're children of Abraham. No, that's not who I am. <laughs> I'm the advanced runner, the messenger, the herald from heaven. And I'm here sent for one reason, to make God look great, to, to, to remind you that you are to prepare your soul, prepare your house for the coming of Christ. As I look at the world events today, I'm, I'm thinking too that all of us need to take seriously our call to be an, a herald of the coming, the second coming of Christ. I don't know what's going to happen to you. None of us do. But I know one thing, Jesus is coming again. And I don't know if this is going to escalate into World War III. I don't know, but I do know this, that it is amazing to see that there's this uh, global turning of favor against the Jew and towards the Palestinians who incited this vengeful attack. And we see it a theme repeated, a theme repeated through history that the Jew becomes the ire of everyone, the nations surrounding, and ultimately every nation on the planet Earth will come against the Jew. And we see that there's this, this, this hatred for the Jew. And here we're called in this day and age, not just to build a retirement package and find a nice place to retire. What's our calling? It is like John to tell people, Jesus is here. He's coming again. Prepare your heart. Prepare your family. Prepare your classes. Prepare your churches. Prepare your communities. He's at the door. And I know you might think preachers have been saying that all my life. And he still hasn't opened the door. He still hasn't blown the trumpet, but one day he will. I think the international community is so ripe for that leader, false Christ, who will come and bring a false peace the whole arena that is so troubled in the Mideast. We are ready for that. The world is setting the stage for that one who could broker peace between this group of people that is really at the center of attention. I don't know if this particular conflict will bring that person to fore or not, but I do know this, it's coming soon. And John the Baptist is one who said, you, like I, are called Christian to prepare folks for the coming, the second coming of Christ. We are in a sad way in the pulpits today in America. We're in a sad way, I think, in the Christian community. We're all about just comfortable living. A preacher who I listened to online, Paul Washer, said this, We have developed a very distorted and convenient view of love that never upsets anyone. It's love without truth, conviction, or the guts to prove, correct, and train in righteousness. It's a love that would let a person walk unwarned into hell rather than confront them about their sin and wound their fragile self-esteem or tell them the truth. John the Baptist was that kind of preacher. He said, the, the issue... Jewish nation, the issue with you and God is that you're separated by your sin, so repent, turn from your sin, run to the Messiah who is now close at hand. His kingdom is near. Get ready. What are you preparing your family for? What are you envisioning as the goal for your children? 
Oh, listen, dear friend, get them ready for the coming of Christ. Quit playing games with God. Deal with sin. If you are unsaved this morning in this audience, if you are unsaved, may I say this? Cry out to God for mercy while you can. It may be today that the trumpet will call. Christ will come down from heaven, split the heavens, and the church will be raptured away, and then the tribulation where the opportunities will be scarce. Get your own heart prepared to meet God. If you're wasting your time and talent and treasure on meaningless things, stop it. Repent, John would say. Turn from this life of of empty pursuits. If you're bitter and shackled by sins of the past and you're not serving God because somebody hurt you somewhere down the road or somewhere, stop it. Understand there are greater priorities. The time is now to come to Christ and let go of past hurts and bitternesses. If you are serving Christ with what you think is uh, great energy, ask God for more energy in the days ahead because the times are going to get darker. Hate to cheer you up this morning, but they will. And as you prepare for the coming of Christ, lean into it. Lean into it and say, Lord, can I do more for your sake? Because Jesus is at the door. It's a voice of disagreement. I am not. I am not Elijah. And I, I come in the spirit of Elijah, but I'm not he. I'm not Christ the Messiah. I just point towards him. I want you to be ready for his coming. As a pastor, I look at you this morning. You're all dressed up in your Sunday finest, but I wonder how your heart is doing. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? Are you? So it's a voice of distinction, not a whisper. He's crying out loudly. Not only is he coming, John says, he is standing. He is standing among you. And there's verse 26, John answered and saying, I baptize with water, but there's one that standeth among you, whom you know not. As of yet, Christ hadn't done many miracles. He was unknown. John himself, verse 31, said, I didn't even know him. But uh, his voice is different from all the rest. I'm here to raise my voice like George Whitfield, who could preach and be heard for a mile in the country. Get your soul ready to meet the Lord. Thirdly, it's a voice of division. A voice of division. The Pharisees ask, why then do you baptize Jews as if they're aliens or foreigners? If you're not the Christ, to whose kingdom are you introducing these sons of Abraham? Well, doctrine does divide, and either saved or lost, and the kingdom of Christ is the most important one. It's not protecting some family name. It's not trusting somebody else's religion, the religion of Abraham, perhaps, or the creeds that came down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, there's the kingdom of Christ through which you, to which you can only enter through the blood of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you think you're saved, but you're not. You're trusting Perhaps religion or a church document that you've signed years ago. But in your heart, there's never been this regeneration. There's one coming, <clears throat> John the Baptist said, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You will be regenerated inside. John the Baptist was baptizing in a region just north of the Dead Sea called Bethabara. It is known there as the place of the crossing, the river crossing and much water there, and there's flocks of people there. 
And he says, um, I, I have been baptizing with water, very symbolic to the Jew. Uh, even in the Old Testament, the tabernacle had a laver of cleansing. It, it, it just meant this cleansing of the heart in preparation for the service that was to come. But water can't save, even though he was baptizing and it was one of repentance. But repentance alone can't make the heart clean. John knew that nothing could for sin atone, nothing save the blood of Christ alone. Verse 33, he said, there's one coming. I'm baptizing with water in preparation for the, the one that's coming, the kingdom that's here. There's one coming that will baptize with the Holy Ghost. And there's a distinction, dear friend, between true belief and just those who ascribe to some ritual or form. And John is saying, you better be sure that doctrine of true faith divides you. The kids sang about it. It's simple. Either we accept, admit our sinfulness, receive Him as our Lord and Savior, trust in His finished work alone, or we'll never get in. So it is a a voice of division. Jews, he's saying, you're coming from the religious sector in Jerusalem and you're asking me if we have permission to baptize folks as an introduction to the kingdom of Christ. And he would look at them and say, you are a generation of vipers. You don't even, you're stinging others with false truths or not preaching all the truth. So it's a voice, fourthly, of definition, a voice of definition say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, God, uh, through John the Baptist, is going to introduce, is going to define and declare for us who is indeed uh, the one standing, plain clothes among them, but the one he recognizes and announces, this one definitely, (laughs) this one, not I, this one, this man coming here, he is the Son of God. There's a song that we sing in churches. It's an older song, All My Life Long. I had panted for a drop from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of this thirst I felt within. I can't, by the law of Moses, I can't, by trying to keep the law of Moses, ever find a cleansing way, forgiveness, final forgiveness for sin. Then the song says, Hallelujah, (laughs) I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. This world to which Jesus came, no different than today, Many did not recognize him, but there are always those that have a craving, a longing for an answer. Come unto me, Jesus has said, all you that are weary, and you will find rest, spiritual rest to your souls. It was a voice of definition, distinction. Here he says, here is the Lamb of God. He points to that. He points to him. Verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming to him. Again, this is six weeks after his baptism. John baptized Jesus, as you will recall, at the very inception of his ministry. And then Jesus was led, of course, by the Spirit away into the wilderness for 40 days of testing by the devil. But after this, John sees Jesus coming to him. And here's the introduction. Here's the announcement that the herald 
uh, the forerunner of Jesus, simply says with great economy of words, Behold the Lamb of God. You see this man, this long-haired with camel uh, hides wrapped around him, a leather belt. He takes his sun-bronzed arm, he stretches out his finger and points to that one. He says, there he is. Can you imagine being part of that crowd? That man coming to me right now is God himself, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb. He defines the approaching man, still unknown as the true Messiah. But there's a reason you might ask, how does John know him? How does John pick God out of the crowd? The next day John seeth Jesus coming and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Was there a halo around him? No. Did he have different clothes on? Did he, did he shine? No, not till the Mount of Transfiguration. He looked like any other man. So how did John define him? I'm a voice. That's all I am crying in the wilderness. But there he is. I know him. And there he is. would you do? Transport yourself to that time, that small chunk of time where Jesus, God, was walking the streets of Israel. What would you do if Jesus came in the back door and the preacher says, there he is? This is a poignant moment. And of all the things John could have said about Jesus, he says, "This I want to define for you, declare to you, that's God. I think most of us would probably fall to our faces if we had that exchange as believers, right? We're not worthy. John would say that. I'm not he, and I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He defines, he knows who he is based on, first of all, it's based on his, Christ's own demonstration, his definition, declaration of who God is, is based on his, he says, I knew him not, verse 33, but that he sent me to baptize with water, and the same said unto me, upon whom Thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. The same is he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. So John has been already forewarned that he would know who Christ was at his baptism. And all you have to do is keep your finger here. Go to Mark chapter 1. We'll make one cross reference today. To see, I think it's very important. Mark chapter 1, we see it. We see it in verse 9, it came to pass, Mark 1, 9, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And straightway he came up out of the water and saw heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, 
Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then, of course, the Spirit moved him to the wilderness. But this voice that was audible already had clarified the definition of who this man was. John himself was confused. But he said, I didn't know him either. But this moment, God's Spirit let me know that upon whom the Spirit rested throughout the Bible, the motif of the dove and the Spirit go hand in hand. Even back to Noah's day, remember that? The dove couldn't find a place to rest. The verse is clear that I will know the, I will be able to define who God is in the flesh when I see the Spirit descending and the Spirit remaining on this man. And he saw that at the baptism. The Spirit of God has in the Old Testament descended and and, and intermittently, it didn't come down upon after Pentecost, it did, it remains in, he remains in us. But before then, the Spirit had a hard time finding a proper resting place. The dove returned, couldn't find a resting place, and then we see, of course, the Spirit of God coming down upon certain men at certain times for, for certain things and jobs and and ministries, we, we see him descending for great revivals. We see him descending upon the tabernacle for a while. We see that Shekinah glory there. But he never was at peace fully staying among men until Jesus came and the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus Christ. And there was that wonderful rest. Aha, I have found the perfect one. He says, I know he, I'm going to define for you, that, that's the one right there. I baptized him, and the Spirit from heaven descended, and there has been this glorious marriage, and I know he's the one by that demonstration. And then he says, I know he was the one because of his designation or mission. This, he says, is the, what? The Lamb of God. This is a this is a telling moment for the Jews because this is the season of the Passover. And if anybody knew about the purpose of a lamb, it was the Jewish nation. Because all you have to do is follow their history, right? Back to the all, well, past their history, to the garden. And the first original sinner, Adam, wrapped himself in the clothing or the skins of a lamb as a sign of the atonement, the covering that he needed as a sinner. Then his own son, Abel, remember that? The, the sacrifice of a lamb that was, that was a picture of a coming atonement from the perfect lamb was acceptable in the sight of God. And the lamb motif continues throughout their history. Moses demands... Uh, of course, the Mosaic law demands that a, law, that a lamb be given and sacrificed. The innocence of the lamb doesn't cover ultimately for sin, but provides that picture that there's a coming lamb. When Moses put the people out of, or brought the people out of Egypt, remember that? He said, put some blood over the doorposts, and when I see the blood of the lamb, I will do what? I will pass over you. And then during the Passover in Jerusalem, at the time in which John the Baptist is now preaching, the very streets ran red with the blood of thousands of lambs that were slain at the temple. It ran all the way down to Brook Kidron. You could uh, walk through the city of Jerusalem and the streets would be 
red with blood flowing from the elevated temple. If anybody knew what it meant to have a lamb cover or atone in a sense of pointing to symbolically a redeemer or a sin bearer, it was this people. And so when John says, I want you to see this pivotal moment, he says, right there, many of you have a lamb under your arm perhaps at this meeting I'm preaching. He says, but I want you to know right there is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I don't know if you're an amen in church or not, but that's a place to say amen. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So at that moment, John the Baptist removes all doubt, gives a defining or a declaration. There is the Lamb of God. It's not me you're looking for. It's not me or even Elijah that you're looking for. Many at the Passover would put an empty chair for the hopeful coming of Elijah that would be the forerunner of the Messiah, still looking for one that they missed. And John said, he's here. It's not me you're looking for. It's not another lamb, animal, goat, or bull. No, it's this man, this man. Verse 35, again the next day after John stood and looking to his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples looked on Jesus as he walked and he saith, behold, the Lamb of God, nothing for my sin could atone, nothing save the blood of Christ alone. Behold, the Lamb of God, which by his coming defied death on the cross, covered for our sins with a final payment, Atoning for the sin of the world. The question as we close is, do you know him? Have your sins been covered by his death? Have you appropriated the precious blood of the precious Lamb of God? Have you recognized who he is? Are you saved? And then, if you are, are you preparing others, making straight the paths before Christ comes again for his church? Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.